I tried to lay out an understanding uh, that the image is relational in several senses. First of all, that the when we say the image of God, we think, okay, God, that God's own self-image. And so it's Trinitarian, that it's a plurality of persons. Um, that God uh, is, by definition, in communion, in communication, and that communion and communication is definitive of who God is. If we are created in God's image, then our own communion with other people, our communication with other people, but also our communion, and this is there, you know, any time in the New Testament. Think of the beginning of 1 John. What's the goal, the fellowship, and the fellowship then is defined by an inter-Trinitarian relationship that we participate in. And so the idea is that the image, properly fulfilled and properly functioning, is inclusive of relationship to God, to one another, to the, I think ultimately to the world itself. In other words, when Adam and Eve are created, they're put in a garden, uh, and they're given the dominion mandate, that is that they would be responsible for creation. Uh, and that is part of the image that they bear. I don't think that's uh, irrelevant to the image. Um, so what I'm getting at here is that uh, in the, I quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer last time. He says, man is distinguished from other creatures by the fact that God himself is in him, that he is the image of God in which the creator sees himself reflected. We could reverse that and say, that we see ourselves then through the eyes of God, that we see one another uh, as reflections of the image of God. Um, so we cannot abstract the understanding of image. Image itself, you know, you, you, it's a reflexive, it's like uh, uh, seeing something in a, if you think of a three-way mirror, you know, you just kind of an infi infinite series there. And so we should not abstract the image from the presence of God. Um, and the image restored in Christ, then, we've, we've fallen out of relationship uh, and out of participation, and the image restored then. And more than restored, and this is the idea that it's not simply a return that Sharon pointed out last time, to the Garden of Eden, but it's a fulfillment of the potential. Did you not remember saying that? I think I did it. Oh, was it? Okay. Well, we, okay. It's okay. Um, I'll take there, there is, uh, today, the, I'm going to fulfill this or uh, put a bit more flesh on this um, by talking about the failure of the image. Um, in idolatrous religion. But one of the things that's occurring in Genesis, as you see the fall, 
is there's a shift from understanding who we are in and through the auditory, in and through the words of God, to the visual. Think here of John's picture, the pride of life, you know, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life he puts together. I think it's a direct relationship then to the failure of the image is a shift then from the auditory to the visual as the structuring principle of who we are. Um, idolatrous religion I, is a kind of indicator of this in that idolatrous religion is all built around images, visual images though, uh, not you know, the image of the word. I think that by the time you get to Romans 7, what we see, this is not just a problem that we project out onto the world, but it's a, a, a problem that we carry within ourselves that even our own image in Romans 7, Paul is going to use the language of the of visual, you know, the word blepo is the idea, that we apprehend ourselves strangely enough, in and through the mind's eye, in and through a kind of visual metaphor. Um, Martin Jay has done not a, a Christian work, but a secular work on the history of Western thought. And what he's shown is that he begins with the Greek philosophical thought and does an entire history of Western thought, and his book is called Downcast Eyes. The idea is that what is occurring philosophically, that the Western philosophical tradition, is taking place within the metaphor of the visual, going back to Plato, and Plato will talk about the mind's eye. I think we could, we need not extrapolate backward, we can just take it as a matter of faith, but uh, that part of the problem is that if we, you know, that there is this shift to understanding who we are through the, through the mind's eye. We don't understand who we are through, you know, it's not seeing as believing. If you think of a, a small child, you probably heard me talk about how, it, how does a child come to uh, enter into language. In a Lacanian picture, do you remember Freud's Day of Babysitting? That sounds like a wonderful movie title, doesn't it? Freud's Day of Babysitting. <laughs> <Daddy daycare. laughs> huh? It's like Daddy Daycare. Yes, something on the order of day. <laughs> a, a, a twisted Daddy Daycare. <laughs> but in, the, in the, the story in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, you know, not only is the child playing with the spool and he begins to speak as the, he's throwing the spool, I don't know if it's the same day or the same time, but Freud puts in a, a footnote that the child learned to do with his own image what he was doing with the spool. And that is that he would look at, there was a mirror in the hallway, in the entryway, and he would look at himself and say, ah! And then bend down and, you know, fort. And so he was playing peekaboo with his own image. The idea he discovered his image in the mirror. 
in the what you could extrapolate, what Jacques Lacan extrapolates from that is the mirror stage, the idea that children come to recognize their own identity through a visual imagery of themselves and others that in fact sets up a kind of false quality in a person. That is, is the kid the image in the mirror? Not exactly, right? That that's not that visual physical imagery is not who the child is. And the same thing, you know, even if it's not the, the mirror stage, uh, it could be not literally a mirror, it could just be that we look at other people and, and, and realize that, oh, this is who I am. The point is that that picture in Lacan fits with what Paul is doing in Romans 7 in talking about the ego, that Paul is talking about the I as a kind of object which he shifts to using visual language about. In chapter 8, when Paul begins to talk about our relationship in Christ, two things are dropped in Romans 8. There's no I, but also the imagery is no longer visual. It's the Word of God. It's, there's the shift. And so what I'm saying is that I think that we can in a, uh, literally trace uh, a, our own identities when we talk about new birth in Christ or we talk about identity in Christ uh, I'm simple minded enough that I just take that as some literal transition in the way that we understand who we are that previously we understood our image on the basis of a kind of failed visual you know, access. So would it be like we understood ourselves as how other people saw us? Like, and that's the false, like, way of understanding who we are. And now we see ourselves as who God sees us. Yeah, that that in the in the uh, idea of, um, and even there, even to say that now we see ourselves in the way that God sees us. Part of what we need to do is a bit of deconstruction of whatever that, you know, the other people or the other, the superego, what Paul is going to call the law. If we apprehend ourselves through this other, it is a kind of punishing self-apprehension. This is Paul's picture in Romans 7. There is this masochistic self-relationship that is described as a relationship to the law, but the law that Paul's talking about is the law of sin and death. It's not the Mosaic law. And in this punishing self-relation, you have, it could be God. It could be, you know, authority. It could be, I'm convinced we need to get rid of that category. Whatever you want to call that category. And let, let me call it some things that... Is it human conscience? Is it morality? 
is it our you know all of those things that we identify with authority and we project onto God is going to make of God an absolute other so yes it is that we see ourselves in and through the eyes of God but we are now in the place of Christ so there's a restoration of relationship and in which in which there's still the 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 word image is still used in talking about Christ but how do we apprehend the image of Christ is Christ a visual icon that we objectify and we want to obtain a visual imagery or is in fact Christ understood as the word so that we it's no longer that we come to the image which by the way this image is that of Christ but it's also our own image right it's no longer through the visual this is why I have a bit of a problem with icons I think that icons pose the same dilemma as idols not because we worship them or not because but because the idea that the icon is mediating God to us I'm afraid presents the same problem as that false understanding of God that you have in Romans 7 uh, that God is not and, are, and we are not mediated then in and through a kind of visual imagery but in and through the imagery of the word that Christ is the word go ahead Sharon you're saying this very casually but I think what you're describing is how systematic theology tends to function as a objectified image set into a standard of principles and definitions and then memorized and the book is closed. Oh, brilliant observation. That uh, that yeah, the way that, that theology often functions is that we come to an objectified set of propositions and doctrines that we apprehend the doctrines and we that becomes our faith. But then it's argued if your faith is not objective, then your faith is like the waves tossed in the sea. <laughs> well, it's not, in other words, the point is not to do away with propositions or doctrines, but what you described is that the way that the theology of somebody like Carl F.H. Henry or of a modernist theology, uh, our friends down the street, the way that the theology functions for them uh, is then as a set of propositions. In other words, if you believe these propositions, you believe these doctrines. Um, and that is the foundation that they build upon. There's nothing to tie it together. So I think the, the, it's not that we do away with proposition, and certainly not, you know, we don't do away with doctrine, but the way that we tie that together is in and through a narrative understanding. And the reason this relates to this subject is it's the difference between knowing a person and knowing a thing. That makes sense. That is, how do you know Miguel? We could describe Miguel, you know, 
he's been working out, looking good, svelte, you know. Uh, we could we could talk about his body. We could talk about, you know, we could do a, a whole, we could list a, a series. But is that description, that physical description of Miguel, who Miguel is? Yes. It's not, I mean... I'm sorry to say it, Miguel, but there may be a lot of people around that look like you. You know, uh, as unique as you are. So we, we only know Miguel when we begin talking to him. And he begins to and tell that's us. that's the word? That's the word. That's the language. So that we can use language, though, in an objectified fashion. And we can project a reality that is a kind of objective, impersonal reality. And I think we tend to do that in theology about God. Here are these propositions about God. Do you, do you believe these propositions? Well, that, that's a very, uh, you know, it, it's the difference then between, well, let's have a conversation with Miguel. Miguel, you know, tell us your story, you know, let the... And then we can link all of that to, you know, uh, an understanding of the person. And so I think that's the difference, that an objectified propositional understanding is not left out. We still know Miguel. But if we would chop off his arms, well, I'm not, we don't want to do that. Uh, or, or in some way, you know, his physical, I'm sure that in 40 years Miguel is not going to, be a svelte. Uh, oh, <laughs> uh, that if his physical features change, uh, do we lose Miguel? Well, in a propositional understanding, that there is no room then for anything like that. Uh, but in a, a a kind of narrative understanding, it takes account of a person. And so who do we know in, in God? Do we know God in terms of an objectified set of principles, standards? You know? I think that's the way that many people think of God. And that is the kind of oppressive relationship. In other words, this is not just a religious problem. This is a personal problem. Because we tend to do this with our own image. That we tend to objectify ourselves. Paul's entire picture of the I in Romans 7 is this kind of object relation. That your own relation to yourself can be on the order of an object. So we want to identify ourselves in the same way just by saying, well, I'm this kind of person or I do this, so that's my, that's what makes me up and then if someone messes with that then we just or if we lose that part of our life whether maybe it is an arm because we were a basketball player that was who I was then you've lost your identity mm -hmm. if, if your identity I am a basketball player and then you can't shoot baskets anymore well then you're nothing mm -hmm. I mean that may be a simplistic but that's literally what happens to people I work for this company. I, my identity, I'm a professor. I'm a very important person. Oh, well. <laughs> Lost that identity. 
that is that if we stake everything on this sort of uh, that that's what culture does for us you know that, that in a cultural setting the way the standards of success or of identity are always in these kind of objectified notions well I've got me a Maserati or I'm I'm really uh, I, I got me a six-pack or Do you? no, I don't. I don't. <laughs> but I know people. Wrong six pack. Um, or I'm a successful dot dot dot. I think what you're describing is why it is so uncomfortable to meet new people, especially like you know, going to a place where you're supposed to. Like the supply preaching churches were like, oh, well, what do you do? Who are you? Well, that's kind of a big question. Who am I? And yeah. I don't know, maybe other people feel very uncomfortable about that as well. Or trying to create a resume or a, like, blog or something where you have to describe yourself. Try to sell yourself to somebody or something. Yeah. And it's very objectified, but we're not objects. And, and I think that uh, a true conversion experience is going to put into play a dynamic in which we reapprehend everything about ourselves and other people so that uh, we don't play that game anymore. Yeah. But it is still hard. It's even easy to say, like we can say, well, I know I'm as I make my resume and I list these things that are supposed to identify me, I know these things don't really make me up. You know, it's like we can say that, but it's still really hard to really believe that as you're doing that and as you're getting rejected. (laughs) It's even harder, yes. You know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do we ever objectify God at all? Because what about when you read the Bible? Are there not objections already in there? Well, I think it is the in Christ there is a new relationship that is there is a development of understanding of who God is even in Scripture. Um, that He's no longer simply simply Creator. He's no longer simply Lord of the universe. He's no longer simply you know uh, unmoved mover. That's not biblical. But he's Abba, Father. Wow. You know, that's the shift that is being... Paul uses that language a couple of times. And of course, he's reflecting what is taking place in the Lord's Prayer. When Christ prays, he calls God our Father. That wasn't a Jewish prayer. They didn't call God Father. So that even in Scripture, even for the Jews, yes, I think there was this... I mean, I think that's the shift that we're describing, the shift of an image of God that is misconstrued, that is a punishing you know, uh, picture of who God is, to a relationship to God. And I don't mean to, to make this a... Um, 
Huh? Like mystical? Yeah, not mystical or or uh, but or or just simply an uh, an absolute individual thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is it it is an all inclusive shift in the way that we apprehend ourselves, other people, and the world that we no longer play the game of kind of that uh, of objectifying God, objectifying ourselves, and objectifying other people. So it's almost the same conversation as, embody, as the conversation we had about embodiment, right? Same, same conversation, but run it down for us. Why did you say that? Um, I guess we we're just talking about how we to be embodied means to be known by the body of Christ. And so yeah, in isolation we're not going to experience a relationship with God even. And we aren't going to be able to make that um, switch in understanding who we are if we aren't, I don't know, experiencing it with, with other people, if we're not identified right. otherwise than what we are, what we do get in the world, you know. Yeah, the, the, uh, the word embodied, I, I, I hope it conveys the idea of uh, not a singular individual, but the idea that, well, no, that is inclusive of uh, a shared environment, uh, uh, a shared family. Uh, all of those things are included in the the idea. So that what I mean by, and I think what the new, te- you know, what is pictured in uh, the reason we can call God Abba Father is that we've been ad- adopted as a child of God, into the family of God, so that we've put on a new body, we could talk in that language, but that body is inclusive of the household of God. So it it is a holistic shift in environment. Our tendency in a, a visual, you know, just think of the visual as over and against the auditory that the visual tends to isolate, reduce, and make static. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we think, understand things uh, very differently through the auditory. Auditory here is dynamic. You know, just listen to me. That's very different than looking at me. Uh, you could take a picture of me. But you, if you would freeze frame an instant of the sound, you've got nothing. So too, in simply a visual imagery of someone, you don't really understand who they are. Uh, but this also then puts into play a whole different set of terms. The different term that, you know, between a visual in chapter 7 of Romans and an auditory in chapter 8 of Romans is the shift from desire to hope. Desire is visual. Desire is a kind of isolating, immediate, uh, 
attempt to escape from the dynamic of time. Hope binds time together. It takes account. You know, that this is the difference. How do you define, again, we'll, we'll pick on Miguel. Who is Miguel? Is he the two-year-old, the 21-year-old, the or the person that will be you know, 40 years old? Um, to understand who a person is, you've got to take account of the dynamic of time, of growth and change and maturity. The visual desire does not allow for that. Hope, and the set of terms that we could put with hope, faith, hope, love, you know, just go through, those are very different than the objectifying terms that we get as the characteristic of the unspirit. So, um, we could even, this is uh, referring to Jürgen Moltmann, in his description, it becomes possible to experience the dynamic of change of history not as a threat to the static reality of the self as an object, but a means as a means of fulfilling hope. That is, even in regard to yourself, there is the possibility that fully engaging change is a kind of threat to you. Because you lose, you know, if you've objectified who you are, well, it's like losing a part of yourself. But if you understand who you are on the basis of hope, then it takes account of change. Um, and, uh, you know, instead of reason or rationalism as foundational, you can think in terms of promise, that we've been entered into a promise with God. Uh, I think the... Uh, reason itself, this is my picture, would be my picture of modernity. It's just one more manifestation uh, of a kind of focus on the visual. Um, let me skip to, let me talk, a, go negative on you a little bit here though. Um, I think we talked last time about Selim and Demuth image and likeness. Do you remember? Mm. So Selim is a word that occurs throughout the Old Testament, but where do we usually encounter the word Selim? It's not in, it's there in Genesis, in Genesis 1 and, uh, and you know, let us make God, let, let us make man in our image. But where do we normally encounter the word Selim? In idolatrous religion, the same word is tzilim. The idol is a tzilim. So tzilim has the literal notion of shadowing forth. So it can be literally a shadow or it can be an idol. And it comes from a root that means to carve out or uh, to hew out. It's even used in Exodus when, uh, in regard to hewing out the stone tablets that uh, the law were carved in. So as, just as a carving is of the same substance as the original, the original image that God has of himself is not of a different substance, but rather speaks of the representation, this is my point again, or the presence of God to himself. So we are, in that sense, a image. We are... Uh, uh, that is inclusive of God's own pre presence. Uh, 
But the idol as image is a disconnect from God. But what I would say, it's also, you know, if we think of the original image as being in and through the eyes of God, that God is, his understanding is the controlling factor. His image is the controlling factor in our own image. But in the idolatrous scene, whose perspective is in control? Obviously, the idolater, right? We create the idolatrous scene. Or humans create the idolatrous scene. Um, man is the originator of the gaze. Man is the originator of the perspective. And there's a loss or refusal of the perspective of God or of the Word of God. And in fact, partly what happens, think here of Aaron, you know, uh, the golden calf, he says, emerges from the fire, while Moses is up talking to God. Very often we get the idea of idolatry that I think is exactly wrong. Is idolatry to take that which is transcendent and to make it imminent? The way I've just described it is different than that. That is, what's the problem in idolatry? We take God who's transcendent, we make him imminent. In the, in, in what we often mean by transcendent is distant, unapproachable, inaccessible. But is God unapproachable, inaccessible in the, in the Old Testament? No, he's there in the garden walking in the cool of the day. And the image in Sinai is, is, is very striking because the idea is that God is present and they say to Moses, you go talk to him, we'll hang back. And in hanging back, while Moses enters into the very presence of God, they create for themselves an idol. I think that's a kind of narrative illustration of what idolatry always does. It's, the problem is not that we take God who is transcendent and make him imminent. In fact, just the opposite is occurring. God who is present to us and wants to have a relationship through the idolatrous scene is excluded and made inaccessible. You know, the, and here you, you have to know a little bit about idolatry. Uh, you In Thailand, have you been to temples or do people, and I'm never clear in Japan, you know, when I go to a Buddhist temple in Japan, are they literally worshiping that image? It's hard to say, isn't it? I don't quite, I'm never quite clear what's taking place. A good Hindu will tell you that the idol is not the object that is worshipped, but the idol is representative, you know, that the, you know, the, the, just as Buddha, the Buddhist idols are a representation of something. But what, what is represented is something ultimately that is inaccessible. Paul says the idol is nothing. I think every good idolater would agree with that. But it's a reified absolute nothing. So the idol, in fact, makes God absent. 
Worse than that, it makes absence the thing. It takes nothing and makes it an absolute something. So that absence, darkness, negation, death become the very object that is worshipped. What I'm saying here is that the idol is a picture of human alienation from God But the alienation is reified and made the entire point. Is this my, am I communicating here? That is that there's a a kind of uh, separation from God that we often imagine that the idol is an, an attempt to bridge that separation. What I'm saying is just the opposite. No, I think that idolatry, and idolatry here, I'm just saying, is a manifestation, a representation of what we always do. It's just formalized and made into a system. Uh, The divine perspective is completely blocked out. Our perspective takes over, and our perspective is one of objectification and alienation, and that is made absolute. So the power of negation is really the power uh, that we have and that is exercised. Um, So in, in idolatry, there is a reversal of the image that we have in the garden. But I think in the, in the reversal, we can kind of see that what was there in the original. Um, Are you familiar with, what most idols represent this you know they're usually and this is I think universally true they're usually phallic symbols uh, in Japan even though they're little Buddhas yeah but they originally are phallic symbols even the little Buddhas look like little phallic symbols um, this is the picture in Ezekiel the idol is pictured as the you know, the gen- genitals of a donkey. And the idolaters are pictured as adulterers lusting after the image. So it's sexual imagery, but of course it's not really about sexuality. It's about lust and desire as a kind of end in themselves. In the same passage that Ezekiel's doing that, he's also talking about the turn to child sacrifice. That is, there is an exponential desire that ends in an, uh, uh, the, the sacrifice of everything. Mm-hmm. So you have male is the idol, female is the idolater, and never the twain shall meet. That is, you cannot obtain the object that is the idol the object of the idol is a complete impossibility. The desire is the goal. Well, in a sense, the desire, yeah, what does desire desire? Does desire desire fulfillment? Mm -hmm. Or does desire in the end, this is actually Jacques Lacan, Mm -hmm. he says desire desires desire. What's your life force? And he and and in a in a Lacanian understanding, desire is the life force. In other words, if you would ever quit desiring, 
Well, you've given up on life in that perspective. But what I would say is, well, no, actually desire is not equated. We shouldn't equate desire with life. In fact, desire, I think we can equate, as Paul does, with covetousness or, or death. That it's an illegitimate desire is precisely a kind of living death. So that desire, by its very nature, is the experience of a deception. It's a first-order encounter with deception. Is that too strong? That is illegitimate. I mean, we all, obviously we're going to have desires, and we, you know, I'm desiring lunch, or I'm desi- well, that's not quite what we mean here. The idea of desire as a kind of first order, you know, of importance, um, and that's the picture in the idolatrous scene. There is an absolute separation between maleness and femaleness. Remember, we talked last time about the original image is the embodied image that's inclusive of human genderedness. The failure of the image is alienation, and the way that alienation is represented in idolatry is an absolute separation in the gendered relation. So that alienation is made absolute. Separation is made absolute. And being made one in the usual marriage sense, or one with God, in the wedding supper of the Lamb, is actually an undesirable possibility, impossibility. The idol represents the impossibility of of accessing the object that the idol represents. I don't know what you've said there. The idol does not give us access to anything. Right? Does the idol give you access to power? It doesn't really, does it? Does it give you access to, is it fulfill your desire? Huh? It can be in some way. Maybe, I don't, (laughs) how do you mean? I mean, in your head or something like that. Maybe just, I don't know. Like, why? I think it could. Why why do people... It can be like, uh, you know, a deceiving desire. You, like, get something, fulfill something. Temporarily, right? Yeah, I mean, like, it's like you achieve something with that idol, you know, what, whichever it is in your life. Yeah, maybe a temporary. What did you say, Miguel? Same thing. Just... Like a placebo. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. If... Uh, I think the the image, though, is that uh, where desire is made the, the goal, or even the object of your desire is made the goal, that there's no fulfilling the desire. And I think that's the... And here, you know, you could argue and say, well, wait a minute, isn't there a, le- a legitimate desire of God? M- maybe there there is that, but I think it's a different sort of uh, desire. And I I think we need to make that distinction that often doesn't get made in our worship music. It sounds like people are having erotic relationships with God and Jesus uh, that is on the order of a kind of uh, idolatrous religion. I don't think it works that way. I don't think that's what it means that we desire 
you know, that maybe we do desire God, but it's not on that order. It's not God is going to fulfill us in that way. The picture, though, is that there is the fulfillment of human genderedness and sexuality in Christ, but not like that. It's through the, the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's through the marriage of the bride of Christ with the groom so that it's not a we're not left in alienation and separation in our gendered creation but we're joined together and the picture then is that here is the fulfillment of the original image here is the purpose here is the true depth I believe to which genderedness originally pointed and that is being united to God but not on the order of human you know physical desire but on the order of uh, uh, that this was a foreshadowing of the relationship between Christ and the church. And so I, th I think you can go to idolatry, and idolatry I'm just taking as that we're always idolaters, even if we're not literally doing a formal idolatrous worship, mm -hmm. because to my mind what idolatry is picturing is the human predicament. Mm -hmm. The idol is the image. What is the image? It's on the order of Paul's eye or ego. It's an objectified object that we would obtain. Can you obtain your eye? <laughs> Maybe that's an odd way. Can you, do you have access to yourself in and through yourself? The only way to obtain an eye is through a dualistic understanding which is bad. Well, uh, what I, even in a dualistic understanding, you'll think here of the Cartesian cogito. Yeah. There is the picture of someone attempting to attain the eye in and through the eye. I think, therefore I am. What's the problem? Well, you've got two eyes, the thinking thing and the thought. Can you bring the thought and the thinking thing this is what Immanuel Kant says about the Cartesian cogito, is you're left with the thinking thing, and that is an absolute blank. It's an empty container. And you can't bring the thought. In other words, you can't think yourself, and through thinking thoughts about yourself, attain yourself, because you've got to keep thinking. You know, this is the joke that, Descartes goes in to the bar and the bartender says, would you have a beer? And he says, I think not. And he disappears. <laughs> it, the joke points to the, to the neurosis of attempting to obtain yourself in, a, in and through yourself through a kind of neurotic repetition. Why, where does the compulsion to repeat come from? You know, the dog returns to its vomit, the pig returns to its wallow. Mm -hmm. There's the compulsion to do the same thing over and over, hoping for a different outcome. Mm -hmm. What is it that people are attempting to obtain in the compulsion to repeat? Mm -hmm. I would say it's themselves. Mm -hmm. Can you be, can you, you know, can Descartes establish his being through his thinking or through his knowing. That's the goal, that you would think here in Genesis. You will 
be like God. Knowing, you know, you'll know good and evil and you'll be like God. That knowing becomes the source or the, the avenue to being. Can you establish your own being on the basis of your own thinking or knowing? That's the human project that I think is futile. But I think that's what's pictured in idolatry. You would obtain the image through continual sacrifice and desire. You would give up everything for the image. But recognize that the image in Paul is the eye. It's still the tzilum. You know, it's still the ego. And it's not that, oh, we need to be, you know, that we're talking about selfishness or something as simplistic as that. No, the whole structure, the whole dynamic needs to be undone. And so that's the picture of the shift from Romans 7 to Romans 8, is there is no I in Romans 8. The idol, the ego, is undone. That we no longer obtain ourselves on the order of an object, but as being embodied in the body of Christ, then we have the image restored to us. That's my little introduction to the image. Huh? Gone wrong, yes. But hopefully, then, once we once we see that that's the problem, that's the predicament. We don't. We won't serve that dynamic.